Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with grateful hearts. Thank you. We've heard your word sung to us. We've seen your gospel demonstrated visibly in the cup and the bread. And Lord, now as we break the bread of life together, as we open your word, Lord, open our hearts to receive from you. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you're speaking. Lord, I know I need your help this morning because I have absolutely nothing to offer unless it comes from your word and is anointed and brought to life by your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, meet with us. Help us not to look to any man, but to look to you. And, Lord, hide me behind the cross that you're the one that is made visible to us. Lord, we sure do love you. You've been so good to us. and What a privilege we have to gather together. What a privilege we have to know that you have spoken to us. And we're about to hear your voice once again as we open the scriptures. Lord, thank you. Thank you. And we give you thanks in Jesus' sweet and lovely name. Amen. I'd invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 5. In just a moment, we're going to begin reading from verse 27, Acts chapter 5, verse 27. But before we read our text, I want to just set the stage. Uh, We've been in the book of Acts for some time now. And as we've seen, the early days of the New Testament church were marked with a desire to do the right thing. In obedience to the Lord, roughly 120 of his followers tarried in Jerusalem. And in trying to be faithful to the scriptures, the disciples appointed Matthias as the successor to Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed our Lord. And waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, they devoted themselves to prayer in unity. They were together when the Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost. And when questions, when even some mockery arose, Peter responded with a sermon that was rooted in the Old Testament. Rooted in Old Testament scripture, and that day scripture tells us that some 3,000 souls followed the Lord in baptism. And the church continued to grow as signs and as wonders followed the preaching of the word. Acts 2.47 tells us, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And the disciples continued in their desire to try to do the right thing, to follow what God had proclaimed, to carry out his will in the world around them. And the early visible successes begin to fade into seasons of opposition. The pressure was on, and as uh, Peter and John were summoned to stand before the Sanhedrin court, they, they were charged to give an account of themselves. And Scripture tells us that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, gave explanation of what was taking place by pointing the religious leaders to the cross and to the gospel. Peter and John were warned not to speak again in the name of Jesus. 
And after further threats, they were released and immediately joined their friends, asking the Lord to give them boldness. In their prayer, they rehearsed to God the growing persecution, and they concluded with the petition. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name, the holy name of your servant, Jesus. The church continued in its desire to do the right thing. They were in unity. They were in cooperation and fellowship. They were unselfish and generous. And God was at work. And then the disciples were arrested and put in public prison. Through a miraculous intervention of God, they were released and they continued to do the right thing. And they were brought before the Sanhedrin once again. And I would invite you, if you wouldn't mind, just to stand for a moment as we read God's word together. Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged. And wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theotis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail." But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. After all of the opposition, the questions, the persecution, Christ's followers continued in their desire to do the right thing. Now, this is a genre of scripture called historical narrative. It tells us what happened in history. 
It doesn't contain too many imperatives. In other words, not too many do's and don'ts. But nevertheless, we know from Scripture that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that God's people be thoroughly equipped for all good works. So we're going to look at what happened, but try to draw out of it the instructive parts of how perhaps we can live today. Because in many ways, the day that we're living in is not much different than the day that the disciples were living in, that the New Testament church was birthed in. The scripture reminds us there's nothing new under the sun. So we'll look at these lives, these men and women. And for those of us who desire to follow Christ with all of our heart, with all of our soul and mind and strength, I believe that this passage is, in, is instructive. So right off the bat in verse 33, we see that doing the right thing may bring opposition. Doing the right thing may bring opposition. You see, these keepers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, which was the established uh, legislative body, the, the court system for the Jewish religion, these men were so cut with the convicting power of God's word and the Holy Spirit that they had to respond. Now, sadly, what we see, their response was not the right one. You see, let me tell you a little bit about, about these people. In Mark chapters 2 and following, even up to chapter 7, a lot of Jesus' ministry was in the city of Capernaum. And the scripture tells us in several instances that the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders came all the way from Jerusalem to Capernaum. But they weren't there to be instructed by Jesus. They weren't there to sit under the authority of God's word. They were there to heckle Jesus. They were there to look at what he was doing and find fault with it. Let me give you a couple examples. In one instance, their complaint was that the disciples on, a, on the Sabbath day were hungry and had dared to pick some heads of grain to feed themselves. On another occasion, they were there and they started to heckle Jesus because his disciples weren't washing their hands before they ate. Imagine traveling 90 miles and that being your, your purpose, to point out things that had nothing to do with God's word, that had nothing to do with God's law, but were rooted in man-made tradition. They were there. This is the kinds of things that they focused on. And, and all of these man-made laws that they were so rooted in didn't change the hardness of their hearts. And here we see again that in their willful unbelief, probably still washing their hands before they got ready to eat, they were at the same time ready to murder the disciples. They were ready to violate the law of a holy God, God's moral law, God who said, thou shalt not kill, all the while keeping their traditions. You see, doing the right thing sometimes brings opposition. In fact, it'd probably be more accurate just to say it, particularly as we consider the state of the society that we're living in, the world around us, de declaring doing the right thing will bring opposition because there is an enemy. 
We have an enemy, the devil, that seeks to kill, destroy, to devour us. We have a world that Scripture says is at enmity with God. We have even uh, in, in ourselves an old nature that still pushes us into doing things that would displease God. Now, when it comes to doing the right thing, and opposition follows, it's easy to come to the mistaken conclusion, well, maybe I'm just not in God's will. But I would say that it probably means you're very much in the center of God's will. And there are few examples better than the man we have yet to meet in our study, and that's the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church while he was living in Ephesus. He wanted to go visit the Corinthians, but the timing wasn't right, so instead he wrote them a letter. And here's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. You see, Paul stayed in Ephesus for about three years longer than he stayed and ministered in any other place. And, and ministry was extremely fruitful, but it was also extremely difficult. Sometime when you want to look at it, go back and look at Acts chapter 19. It tells us about ministry in Ephesus. The religious leaders were so stubborn that Paul left the synagogue and wouldn't teach there. So he set up shop in the hall of one man named Tyrannus and continued to teach every day. But while he was teaching, there was demonic activity going on, even demonic violence that was taking place. It was a place of witchcraft. It was a place of idolatry. And all of this culminating in a riot because some of the religious people who were involved in idolatry were feeling that their uh, economic welfare was being threatened. All along the way, it was difficult. And before Paul left Ephesus, he wrote to the Corinthian church again. Not boastfully, but matter-of-factly, Paul reminded them that his ministry had been marked by endurance, afflictions, hardships, difficulties, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labors, sleepless nights, times of hunger. But at the same time, he mentions that his work had been touched with knowledge, with kindness, with the Holy Spirit, with sincere love by the word of truth and the power of God. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us he was the recipient of both slander and good report, glory and dishonor, grieving and rejoicing, having nothing but possessing everything. And there can be little doubt as we look at the life of Paul that he always sought to do the right thing. That was his desire. That was his goal. And his ministry was marked with open doors and with opposition. See, do the right things when the doors are open, but also when they seem to be closed. Because doing the right thing will bring opposition. Second thing we see, verses 34 and 35 and 38 and 39, doing the right thing reveals God's faithfulness. Now, now I want to be really clear right here. God is always faithful. His very nature is faithfulness. 
Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 declares, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. You see, even during the times that we are unfaithful, God is faithful. And he says in 1 John 1, 9, that he's faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, doing the right thing then does not cause God's faithfulness. But often it does reveal his faithfulness and sometimes through the most unlikely sources. Gamaliel was a teacher of the law from a very well-respected family. In fact, his grandfather, a man named Hillel, started one of the schools of, of Jewish religious thought that influenced generations. He was from a family that was considered illustrious in their religious scholarships. And Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul, was a student of Gamaliel. Until his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, though, remember that Paul was a hater of Christ and his followers. So there's no indication that Gamaliel was favorable to the disciples. There was no indication that Gamaliel wanted to hear their message or to learn about this way that they were in. Yet, it was God who used Gamaliel as an instrument of his faithfulness. It was the intervention of Gamaliel that very well could have spared the disciples from being executed at this moment. And we shouldn't be surprised because God is faithful. Maybe you're thinking back to the book of Joshua where Joshua sent two spies into the promised land to see what was there and to begin to think about how we go in and take what God gave us. These men were discovered but they were saved from capture by a pagan prostitute named Rahab. Nehemiah was serving in the court of a pagan king named Artaxerxes. He was the king's cupbearer. And when the word came to Nehemiah that Jerusalem was in a state of ruin, his heart was grieved, and he wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to see the city rebuilt and restored for the glory of God. And it was the pagan king that made it possible by funding the work and providing the necessary protection. Maybe you're thinking about Joseph who sought to do the right thing at every stage of his life, who scripture says was faithful in every circumstance. But there came a time when he was put into a position of authority that spared his family and spared his people during a time of severe famine. And it was a pagan Pharaoh that made it possible. You see, God can deliver using the most unlikely of means but we have to keep in mind that sometimes God does not spare us from trials and opposition. In fact, if you've been walking with the Lord any length of time, you know that already. Because sometimes it's not his plan to bring us out, but to carry us through. Doing the right thing brings opposition. But doing the right thing reveals again to us God's faithfulness. And there's a third thing we see here. Verses 36 and 37, doing the right thing. Now, now this one's going to come as a shock. 
doing the right thing means doing the right thing. You see, in his warning to the Sanhedrin, Gamaliel mentions a couple of people that had been involved in doing the wrong thing. A certain Theodos rose up, leading a movement of people, apparently, uh, historians tell us, desiring to overthrow Roman rule in the region. After him, a man named Judas the Galilean rose up, gathering a following, creating a stir. And the historical details are sketchy as to what these men and their activism hope to accomplish. But Theodos has come and gone. Judas the Galilean has come and gone. And have you ever stopped to consider that the Pharisees have come and gone? The Sadducees are a distant memory. Even the Sanhedrin court has ceased to exist. You see, most causes, most social issues, most political movements, most of all of those isms that we get caught up in at times eventually fade away, often without accomplishing much of anything. So rather than doing the wrong things, or even doing good things, do the right thing. And doing the right thing means doing the right thing. Make sure your activism is the right activism. Make sure that your comments on social media are the right comments. Make sure your hashtag this and your hashtag that is the right hashtag. See, in another week, we will have passed another political season. And whoever is chosen to serve as president will have four to eight years to make his mark. And then he will have come and gone, perhaps without making any real difference whatsoever. See, all the important issues that concern us, and I'm, I'm not saying don't pay attention to the issues, but all of those things that concern us, social justice, welfare of children, the care of the unborn, racism, all, all of these, and, and fill in the blank, they have a common denominator, which is sin. And they also have a common cure, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't get so bogged down, even in doing good things, that you fail to do the right thing. And, and what is the right thing? doing what God's word says, proclaiming his goodness, sharing his gospel, living for him. You see, the fourth thing we learn from these, these men and women, verse 29, doing the right thing involves taking a stand. You see, it's one thing to want to do the right thing. It's, it's one thing to talk about doing the right thing, but it's another thing to do it. Do you remember the words of Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? When they were faced with the command to bow and to worship an idol, they refused. They didn't say, everyone's doing it. They didn't say, well, just this once won't hurt. They didn't say, when in Rome, do as the Romans. They didn't say, God will understand. He knows the pressure we're under. No, when they were threatened, they refused to bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego took a stand, and they said, Our God, 
whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And it shouldn't surprise us because these boys already had a track record. They had already taken a stand when they were invited to partake of the table of the king. They refused the king's meat. They said, feed us vegetables and, and see what God does through that. We, we don't need the king's meat to maintain our strength. They had a track record of taking a stand. And scripture tells us, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. This wasn't a spontaneous decision but it was a reaffirmation of a position that they had already taken. They had a track record. Remember during the previous arrest, Peter and John had already been brought before the Sanhedrin. They had already been charged not to speak again in the name of Jesus. But Acts 4 tells us, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when the disciples took this stand, they asked God for boldness, and God answered. Acts 4.31 tells us that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I, I appreciate something Brother Eric Santana shared with me between services, and just such a wonderful reminder he reminded me of what I already knew, that this is a church with people that already have a track record. Many of you for so many years serving the Lord and standing on his word and standing for him and declaring his goodness, and I bless you for that. But there does come a time when to do the right thing, to do what God wants us to do, to live out what his word declares, we have to take a stand. And it's usually not just once, but many times, over and over and over again. But notice the faithfulness of God. God, the Holy Spirit, who helps us at these times. There's a fifth thing I believe we can learn from this narrative in verse 40. Doing the right thing is always costly. It, it's always costly. Perhaps Gamaliel's intervention saved the disciples from execution but it did not save them from a beating because these religious leaders relished their authority. They relished their power and they had already warned and threatened the disciples and his people who spent their lives worrying about what their fellow Jews thought of them. They felt compelled to act. Now, now scripture doesn't tell us the nature of this beating but the usual punishment prescribed by the Jewish authorities was 39 lashes. Uh, Paul, uh, five different times, suffered 39 lashes because of his stand to do the right thing. And this passage gives us the list uh, of the first of many persecutions that the New Testament saints would face. And it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus himself was the first martyr and most of his disciples and followers suffered cruel and agonizing deaths. Consider what scripture tells us and what church history reveals. Stephen was stoned to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. 
Philip was scourged, thrown into prison, and afterwards crucified. Matthew was killed with an axe. James the younger was beaten, stoned, and finally had his brains dashed out. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark was dragged to pieces. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul gave his neck to the sword. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. Simon was crucified. Only John the Beloved escaped a violent death, but even he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. You see, in a world that hates righteousness, according to John 7, 7, and a world that God calls his enemy, according to James 4, 4, doing the right thing is costly. It's costly to call sin, sin. It's costly to take a stand against the murder of the unborn. It's costly to proclaim marriage as being the purview of one man and one woman. And, and even now, as I'm trying to say these things gent, gently, and I hope my, my love and compassion is coming across, somebody listening this morning may be feeling mighty uncomfortable and squirming at these words because you've never taken a stand for the truth. And it's not easy because it's always costly. My, my first season of ministry, I spent... 20 years as a missionary with Advancing Native Missions, leading a ministry called Comforting the Persecuted Church. And I remember speaking at a conference when somebody asked me a question during the Q&A time, what can we do to avoid persecution? And I'll tell you, the answer is easy. Live like the world around you. Stay silent. Hitch your wagon to the world's ways. Because scripture tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, only all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Finally, verse 41, doing the right thing is always worth it. Doing the right thing is always worth it. See, Jesus wasn't just weaving a web of happy talk when he declared, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, Jesus wasn't living in a bubble somewhere. Jesus knew what he was talking about because he had lived it out. And as my beloved brother Noel read this morning, as we came to the Lord's table, Isaiah 53, he was despised. Jesus was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And Peter and his companions, for doing the right thing, 
found themselves beaten, yet rejoicing. Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer in the name of their great Savior. And, and perhaps years later, Peter was remembering this day and remembering this incident when he penned the words found in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. See, I believe in blessings in this life. I believe that doing the right thing brings the temporal blessings, but I believe they'll always be followed by eternal reward because this life comes and goes. Think of the oldest person you've ever met, and it's a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. For those who suffer for doing the right thing in this life, they look more like Jesus. But Scripture tells us in eternity, we don't understand all that this means, but in eternity they will be like him, for they will see him, we will see him as he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. You see, doing the right thing is always worth it, both now and forever. Mike, you can come on up, your, your team this morning. So, so the question, the obvious question, what is the right thing to do? In general, it's to do what God says, to live for him, to surrender our lives to him. Specifically in the context of this passage, the right thing to do is found in the words of the angel of the Lord who opened the prison doors and brought the disciples out, Acts chapter 5, verse 20. He told them, go and speak to the people all the words of this life. See, that's our mandate. It's our marching orders. That's our responsibility, but also our great privilege. And Scripture says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. And that's the message I declare to you this morning. Maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God's holiness. We're at a loss. We're under the wrath of God who told every sinner. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 is one of several places where he said this. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now think about that. Jesus told us to do something we cannot do for ourselves. And that would be beyond terrible until we realize that he already did for us what we cannot do for ourselves because he sent his son to take our sin upon himself, 
to pay the penalty we owe by laying down his life on our behalf and then to cover us with his perfection. See, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we repent and turn from those sins and put our trust in him, many things take place. We're a new creation. Our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. They're thrown in a sea of forgetfulness. They're blotted out. They're covered, never to be remembered again. But there's also an exchange that takes place where we swap our unrighteousness for the righteousness of Jesus where his holiness is credited to our account so that when God views us through his son Christ he sees perfection we still struggle there's still an old nature we fight against but the beauty of the gospel is that Christ has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, but what God requires. He paid the debt that we might be free. Mike's will lead us in a song that if you've been attending some, you're familiar with it. But I want to remind you that the right thing is the main thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do the right thing. If you're not walking with the Lord, surrender to him today. Believe the gospel. Believe Jesus, who he said he was and what scripture professes about him. If you're walking with the Lord, surrender your life again. Don't hold anything back in the service of the Lord because it's an unimaginable, indescribable privilege to do the right thing. The power of the Holy Spirit at the word and beckoning of Christ And as we sing this morning, I invite you to make this song your prayer. If you'd like to come to the altar, it's it's always open here. There's no magic that takes place up here. This is just wood and, and stone and carpet. But as my brother Anthony shared, as he welcomed us, there there is something about making a step of faith. When Jesus healed the woman who touched his garment, he said, Daughter, your faith has made you whole. So if you'd like to come, you're welcome. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, we'd love to. But you're also welcome to sit right there. But I encourage you, make this song your prayer.
today. Lord, please help us to go in a spirit of surrender. Well, I know something will come up maybe before we get out of the parking lot. It's going to cause us to want to claim what we think is ours, our rights, our responsibilities, our privileges. But Lord, help us to remember that we're yours. And Lord, use us for your glory. Help us to do the right thing, to know what the right thing is at the right time, the right place, to do it in the right way. Lord, let it be a declaration of how good you are with our mouths, with our lives. Lord, let it all be for your glory. And we sure do love you and give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.